We looked at the Old Testament, at least a couple passages out of the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16, Isaiah chapter 53. And so now we want to trace that Old Testament thread, or we could say the Old Testament root that kind of grows up and through the soil uh, of the New Testament. And we want to look at uh, five passages uh, to uh, examine how these themes from these Old Testament passages surface and kind of blossom and spread out branches and fruit in the new. And the first of those passages we want to look at is Matthew chapter 3. So Matthew chapter 3. So let's open up our Bibles and look at Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 13 through 17, which you should probably recognize as the baptism of Christ. Matthew chapter 3, and we'll read verses 13 through 17. So this is now here, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All right, so here we have the record of the baptism of Christ. And it's here John conducting his ministry in the wilderness uh, that sets the stage for a quotation from the book of Isaiah, which is actually back in verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, what's important for us to note is that's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And whenever you see an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, you want to understand the dynamics as to how a New Testament author uses the Old Testament. I think some people might be under the impression that the New Testament author is simply just quoting that one section, that one little statement. And I really don't think that that's the nature of the use of the Old Testament in the New. Rather, instead, I want you to think of Old Testament quotations as anchor points. Old Testament quotations as anchor points to which the New Testament author is taking chains, if you will, and connecting his own thought, his own ideas, to a significant chunk of the Old Testament so that he cannot just simply pick up that one statement out of the Old Testament, but in fact, not just the chapter out of the Old Testament and not just maybe the section of the Old Testament, but in particular, maybe the entire book out of the Old Testament. That, so he's securing, he's anchoring his own thought by several anchor points so that he's dragging the entirety of the book of Isaiah out of the Old Testament to use it 
And it's simply that that one quotation is the entry point to the thought of the whole book. And what this, where this becomes evident here is in the events surrounding the rest of Christ's baptism. So that here Jesus comes out into the wilderness to John and he says, here, I need to be baptized by you. And of course, John is dumbfounded. He's like, me baptize you? Are you kidding? You need to baptize me. You need to baptize me. And yet, what is his response? He says there, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So here's a second anchor point going back to Isaiah. You know, think of carabiners, uh, if you will, hooking up to these anchor points in the book of Isaiah, connected to maybe chains. As John's getting ready, or not John, but Matthew's getting ready to pull the whole of Isaiah out of the Old Testament to support his claims. Remember, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, that we just read a little a few moments ago, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I am obeying my Father's will, and in obeying my Father's will, I am, in a sense, creating righteousness. I'm the righteous one. So here's a second anchor point, going back to Isaiah. Here is the righteous one, fulfilling the will of his Father. Now what's important is that Jesus is also saying, hey, I'm coming to be baptized. Now John recognized, no, wait a minute, I need you to baptize me. Why? Because John recognized his own sinfulness. This was a baptism of repentance. I don't have time to go into all the details. I would love to explore them. Uh, but um, what they were doing is that he's baptizing them at the Jordan. It's as if John was saying, we need to go back and re-enter the promised land the way that Israel re-entered the, or entered the promised land by crossing the Jordan. We need to start over because we've been so sinful. And yet notice what Jesus, the righteous one, he who is free from sin, he who is perfectly in conformity with God's law, he says, I need to be baptized by you. He's identifying with the sinners when he himself is not sinful. Remember what Isaiah said, he would be numbered with the transgressors. So the righteous one is submitting to a baptism of repentance, not because he himself needs to be baptized, but rather because he is identifying vicariously, representatively with the sinners. He's saying, I'm going to cast my lot with you. I'm going to suffer on your behalf, and so therefore I am going to take the sin upon myself, your sin. and he shall bear their iniquities. All right, so now 
This is something that, that we want to keep in mind is that notice here too at the end where he says, you know, he, he does, he baptizes uh, Jesus. Jesus comes out of the water. The spirit descends upon Jesus. And out of the heavens bellows the voice of the father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. A statement that really God could never say of any Old Testament person, any saint going before because every single person was guilty of sin, but yet here is Jesus who is perfectly righteous. But in particular, this is evocative again of the Old Testament, again of Isaiah, where the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 42, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Yet another anchor point that Matthew links in these events surrounding Christ's baptism to the prophecy of Isaiah so that John, or sorry, that so that Matthew is saying in, in basically as loudly as he can, the one that Isaiah prophesied, it's this guy here. It's Jesus, the Messiah the righteous one, the one of whom the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the one who says, let it be so now for the fulfilling of all righteousness. I will identify with you by undergoing this baptism of repentance even though I am the righteous one because I am bringing about your redemption. So notice these connections to Isaiah. That the New Testament is... uh, is saying, this is Jesus, and Jesus is the one of whom the Old Testament spoke. This is the one that Isaiah spoke of. Let's take a look now at a second passage, and we want to look at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is, of course, uh, one of perhaps the most famous chapters in the Bible because it's there where the Apostle Paul speaks of uh, justification by faith alone. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works that is declared righteous by his obedience, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here he believes and God uh, accredits to him this righteous status. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To me, those are some of the sweetest words in all of the scriptures, because here the Apostle Paul says, that he accounted the ungodly Abraham, the ungodly Abraham, as righteous. That gives us hope. But one of the things that he does there is he talks so much about justification, but there's a sense in which we can say that one of the key focal points comes at the very end of the chapter. Because here in verse 23... 
he's been talking about this whole idea of imputation repeatedly. And he says there in verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, there's that imputation language, that accrediting language, that transfer language, it will, um, it would be, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, that is Abraham's sake, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, what we may not realize is that the Apostle Paul here is once again quoting from Isaiah. And he's quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 53. Because in Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet tells us in 53, 11 and 12, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Um, therefore, I will divide with him uh, the portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In that broader context there, it talks about Christ the Messiah being delivered because of their sins, because of our sins. And that's the very language that the Apostle Paul says here in Romans 4.25 when he says he was delivered up for our trespasses. Handed over, delivered up. Isaiah uses the same language. The Apostle Paul uses the same language. And in particular, when it says, when Paul says that he was raised for our justification, that this too has connections to Isaiah. Because what biblical scholars say is that when it says there in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see, that's language that the Psalms use to say that he shall live. And that they think that this is what Paul is drawing on when he speaks of the resurrection of Christ. Now the big question here, I think, is, is why would the Apostle Paul link imputation, link our justification to the resurrection of Jesus? And how is this ultimately connected to Isaiah chapter 53? And the answer comes in is that it's not just the crucifixion of Christ that constitutes our salvation. It's the entirety of the work of Christ. And that's one of the reasons why I'm fond of saying life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The whole package. It's the whole package of the work of Christ. And in this particular case, the Apostle Paul zeroes in on the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? I want to tell you that the resurrection is just as important as his crucifixion, just as important as his lifelong obedience. Why? Because the resurrection of Christ is the Father's declaration, so to speak, 
vindication that Christ indeed was righteous. It was the Father's way of reversing the false verdict that the religious leaders declared of Christ. When they declared him guilty, sentenced him to death, and indeed put him to death, and then put him in the grave, if Jesus had remained in the grave, what would that have meant in terms of the law? Go ahead, go big or go home. Don't, don't go home, but just you know, shout it out. Yeah, the curse remains. In other words, the wages of sin is death. Yeah, I may be Presbyterian, but you guys can talk to me. It's totally okay. Uh, I, you know, yeah, not, no worries there. Um, yeah, it would have meant that he was guilty of sin. But the reason why God raises him from the dead is to declare, to say, no, my son is not merely innocent of wrongdoing, but he perfectly fulfills the law and thus is completely entitled to eternal life. And so God raises him from the dead. But this is so important is that Christ's resurrection, Christ's resurrection is not only vital for the work of Christ, but it's vital for your justification as well. Because it's in Christ's declaration of his righteousness through his resurrection that you receive the right and title to eternal life. You receive your justification, as Paul says there in Romans 4.25. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And once again, this invokes those themes from Isaiah chapter 53. Um, uh, that by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, he underwent death so that death does not have the final say in our lives. So that it is not the exclamation point at the end of our lives, but merely a comma that gives way to the life of resurrection and eternal life. So that's another connection there to Isaiah. That's another connection there to Isaiah. There is a third passage. We just want to look just a couple of verses down as we look at Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at this chapter in, in a lot more detail in the third lecture in a little while. So I don't want to focus too much on this particular chapter now but I at least want to make a few observations. And in particular, I want you to note how Paul begins here in verses 12 and following, but particularly I want you to look at verses 15 and following. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. And I want you to listen to the interplay between the one and the many. For if the many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. And especially here in verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, once again, think back. Where have you heard this language before? Where have you seen this before? Where the one man, the high priest, goes and sacrifices the goat for the many. Or again, in Isaiah chapter 53, you've heard this language before of the one and uh, the many. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by the knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he, that one man, poured out his soul into death and was numbered with The many, the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This language of the one and the many, the Apostle Paul, I think, draws straight from Isaiah chapter 53. In other words, as Paul is writing Romans, he has his scroll of Isaiah laid open before him. Now, in reality, he probably didn't have the scroll laid open He probably had it all up here. You may not realize this, and it's a brief side side note, but I think it's worth noting. The technology, the uh, technological invention, and it may not seem like a technological invention, but the technological invention of the book in the 16th century, I think, had a negative side effect. Don't get me wrong. I love having my copy of the scriptures, and I don't ever want to lose it. I always want to have my copy of the scriptures. But if you didn't have a book, and because it was too expensive, the equivalent of thousands of dollars to own a copy of the scriptures in the 15th century, where would you keep your copy of the word? Up here. And in fact, one of my colleagues says that he was talking with one of his Hebrew professors who was a Jewish rabbi. And that through a series of questions, he says, wait a minute, do, you know, we're talking about Jeremiah. Do you have the, 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 the chapter memorized? And he was like, yeah. And then he talked some more. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait. Do you have the whole book of Jeremiah memorized? He's like, yeah. And then he stopped after a few minutes and said, wait a minute. How much of the Old Testament do you have memorized in Hebrew? Do you have the whole Old Testament memorized in Hebrew? It's like, yeah. Can I test you? Yeah. <laughs> and so he started firing verses left and right, and yeah, you know, just giving it to him and pick up, right? The whole Old Testament memorized in Hebrew. I can't remember yesterday. 
I do remember that I had tumbleweed, you know, for dinner. So that I, it was etched in my mind. But, yeah, so the Apostle Paul, I suspect, had vast portions of the Old Testament, if not the whole thing, memorized. It's possible. It's possible. But books, and now these things, are really taking a toll on our memories. Okay, so, but in particular, it's Romans 5.19 that we're going to explore in much greater detail. But Romans 5.19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were, and I'm going to tweak the translation here, because it's, the Greek is not, does not say made. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners, is what the Greek more accurately states. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be appointed righteous. That's a bit different. And once again, that echoes what Isaiah says. He would make many to be accounted righteous. Imputation. The imputation, the obedience of Christ is accounted to the many. It's accredited to the many. It's not something that we ourselves do, but rather it is something that Christ does and he transfers it to our account. All right, so that is yet a third connection, a third connection to Isaiah. Let's look at a fourth and just turn a couple of pages over. And I hope we're looking now at Romans chapter 8. I hope you can see at this point how integral Isaiah is to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And we would say, I think, it's integral to his entire understanding of the person and work of Christ. So in other words, you prick Paul's finger and Old Testament scripture comes out. That's how inculcated he was. He was pickled in the Old Testament. You could say. I love pickles, by the way. And so does my daughter. I, I don't know. I think it's... Uh, I'm part Czechoslovakian, part Mexican, which I guess means I'm a Czechoslovakian. I don't know. Uh, my wife loves stinky European food, and, it, and it, it's in spades in my kids. My kids like stinky food. You know, it's like sardines and, you know, pickles and all that kind of stuff. That has nothing to do with this. I just thought I'd throw it. That's a freebie. There you go. All right, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and following. This is another uh, important passage with roots to Isaiah. There is therefore now no condemnation. We could flip that and say there is now justification, because condemnation, justification are antonyms. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit." Now, I think the common explanation of these four verses runs as follows. That Jesus has declared us righteous and he's freed us 
uh, as, and so from sin. And so now we're redeemed and we can now produce the fruit of good works. In other words, that when Paul says in order, in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, that it refers to our good works. In other words, Christ has redeemed us so that we can produce good works. Now, that general theological truth is absolutely true. Christ has redeemed us so that we can produce the fruit of good works. But I'm not so sure that, I don't believe that that's exactly what's going on here in in, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. To put this in more technical terms, that in verses 1, you have the doctrine of justification. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that verses 2 through 4 talk about sanctification. So is this passage about what God has done in Christ or is it about what we do as a result of God's work? And I think the answer to that is no. Romans 8, 1 through 4 is about what God has done in Christ. It's not yet, Paul is not yet ready to introduce our spirit-produced good works. So that means that I think that this is what Paul is emphasizing here, and once again, this has roots deep in Isaiah, is that in verse 3, Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the emphasis falls upon what we can't do through the law, on the one hand, but on the other hand, what God has done in Christ. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So these verses that follow, verse 4 what follows, is the explanation of what God has done and what the law was incapable of doing. What God has done in Christ, not what we do. Not yet. So God has done what the law could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, hold that note, for sin, we'll come back to that, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not meaning that we have fulfilled the law, but rather that Jesus Christ, as the perfect human being, fulfills the righteous requirements of the law representatively, vicariously on our behalf so that God can say, human being, a human being has fulfilled the law. And in that sense, 
Paul means, I believe, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, in Romans 8, 4, he's talking about the work of Jesus. Not what we do as a result of the work of Jesus. And in particular, I think what even further draws us into uh, the, the Isaiah chapter 53 here is not only the representative character of the work of Christ, but that little phrase, for sin. Now, I won't bludgeon you needlessly with Greek, okay? But that phrase, for sin, for sin, periharmartias is the phrase in Greek. Periharmartias. Hamartias is the word for sin. Peri is the word for for, for sin. That is the exact phrase that 90% of the time the Old Testament translates as sin offering. That's the phrase sin offering. So it's not that Paul is saying because of sin, although that would be true. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for a sin offering, he condemns sin in the flesh. Or, and as a sin offering, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Perihamartias, or for sin, is the same phrase that appears in Isaiah 53.10. 44 out of the 54 occurrences of that phrase in the Old Testament refers to sacrifice in the Old Testament. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus was a sin offering. And as that sin offering that is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10, God fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in us, in human beings, when Jesus vicariously and representatively suffered on our behalf, when he bore the penalty of the law and he fulfilled the law in perfect righteousness so that he could make you to be accounted as righteous, so that he would remove from you the penalty of the law and give to you through faith alone the perfect righteousness and obedience that he had offered to his father. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. I'm not big on reading quotes, but this one quote that I read comes from a, a theologian by the name of Francis Turretin. Francis Turretin was a 17th century theologian. He taught the Bible, he taught theology at the Academy at Geneva, which is in Switzerland where John Calvin taught about, say, 75, 80 years prior to, so about two generations prior. So he taught theology there. And Turretin has written a three-volume Institutes of Elenctic Theology, which is another way of saying, in technical terms, dogfighting theology. I love dogfighting. I mean, I don't like hurting people, but I'm just saying the idea of zooming around in the sky. And it's called elenctic theology because he's interacting with other positions and explaining why they're incorrect and why uh, the uh, Protestant church's position was the correct position. Elenctic means kind of inter interrogating kind of theology. 
And he says this about this passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. He says, Being made like to sinful flesh, yet without sin, he offered himself for us as a victim for sin, and having made a most full satisfaction, condemned sin, that is, perfectly expiated it, in the flesh for this end, that the condemnation of sin might give place to our justification and the righteousness of the law, whether as to obedience or as to punishment is fulfilled in us, not inherently, but imputatively. While what Christ did and suffered in our place is ascribed to us as if we had done that very thing. Thus we are considered in Christ to have fulfilled the whole righteousness of the law because in our name he most perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law as to obedience as well as to punishment. Sweet words. Comforting words. That once again, when you stand in the presence of God, he does not see your sin. Because Christ has borne it, he has taken it. He only sees the perfect obedience of his son Jesus. He only sees that robe of his perfect righteousness and suffering that covers you. So that he sees you as perfectly righteous and holy. With no reason for condemnation. There's one last passage that I want us to look at. And this is another of Paul's letters. We want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we want to look at uh, verses 20 and 21. 20 and 21. But we'll read back to verse 16. So that we can get a little bit of context. And here the Apostle Paul is talking about the ministry of reconciliation that he has with the other uh, apostles. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Once again, this is a passage that is pickled in Isaiah. Because notice there that language that he draws straight from Isaiah when he says, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. There's that language of imputation. And then you see the flip side of that in that if he's not counting the, the transgressions against us, 
If he's not counting our trespasses against us, he's taking away them and imputing them to somebody else. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin. This is not to say that Jesus actually became sin. But rather, as Isaiah says, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin or he carried it away. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. He's sinless. Think of Paul, Romans 8, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not that he was himself actually sinful. To what effect? To what end? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in other words, the same manner by which Christ receives our sin through imputation is the same manner by which we receive the righteousness of Christ. So that God conveys his righteousness as the gift that he gives through the perfect suffering and obedience of Christ. Here once again, as Luther said, especially about this particular passage, is the glorious exchange. Christ takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. This is why, as you know, the theme of the conference says, Christ is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. Now in the next lecture, what we'll do is uh, we will take a look at uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 in much greater detail.